Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast, and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 42, and we have Stuart Davidson joining the show. Stuart was a professional bookmaker for 20 years before the equine influenza hit Sydney Racing. Stewie turned his hand to full-time professional betting, and he shares his insights and knowledge on both betting and bookmaking. We discuss specialization having an open-minded approach, and the fractured nature of horse racing wagering in 2018. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Stuart Davidson. Today I'm joined by Stuart Davidson. Stuart, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure, Jake. So, Stuart, do you want to start with sort of your background in horse racing? And I've heard uh, an old wives' tale before that you started out with a modified date of birth to get your bookmaking career started. Is that true? <laughs> that is true, mate. I got my bookmaking license at 20 by fudging my date of birth by one year. But, mate, I've been on a racetrack, uh, well, I've been on a racetrack basically all my life. I can't remember, I can't remember life pre-racetrack, put it that way. And how did you get involved when you started, I guess, at age 20, or was it even before that? So my father, still to this day, is a bookmaker. He's been a bookmaker for going on 50 years, somewhere between 45 and 50 years. So that he was a school teacher by trade and used to work the greyhounds at night and then the races on a Saturday. And basically, I was introduced to the industry through him. So I have, I've had a lot of good mentors through my gambling life, but none more so than my father. So did you always want to be a bookmaker or did you think about punting when you were sort of age 20 and giving that a shot first? Mate, I was intoxicated by the racetrack from a very young age and, you know, being, you know, being hands-on and being in the middle of the betting ring and, you know, watching all the goings-on and the theatre and, you know, the money-changing hands and all the other aspects of, you know, trying to solve the form puzzle and whatnot, um, yeah, sort of was was intoxicating as a young child and I knew from a very early age that you know if I was ever going to make anything in life it was more than likely going to be through the racetrack and I had a desire to do it well and I you know like I said I just spent every awaking hour either studying or learning or you know every conversation I was having predominantly was about racing gambling probability matrices regression analysis all this sort of thing from a young age so I've sort of grown up with very much a gambling background. So would you go to the track or see a board of odds and think, gee, I'd love to lay that eighty chance or that 4-1 to one chance? Or were you thinking, <laughs> gee, I'd love to back that 8-1 to one chance? Um, well, a little bit of both. So from a very early age, I, you know, very rudimentary price analysis and, and price modelling, but I would go there with a you know, set of probabilities or, or markets that I thought represented a fair and true sort of analytical approach to the race. And then so any... Any resultant from those prices, any lays or backs or shorts or long positions that I would take would be a result of those actual markets. So uh, it could be both. It could be I want to back the eight to one chance. It could be I want to back the dollar eighty chance, or it could be vice versa. I didn't go there specifically, 
with a set of tips. I went there with a set of tips. In other words, I was looking for value at, at all opportunities. So when I listen to mainstream racing coverage, I hear this $10 chance is value. Isn't that sort of contrary to what the idea of value is in that depending on how often that 10 to 1 chance is you know, actually going to win, why is some of that racing vernacular not necessarily true when you talk about mathematics and, and finding true value, do you think? No, you're very true what you say. People associate longer prices with value when value is at the end of the day is just the reality versus the expectation. If you think a horse is an $8 chance and you're getting $10, that is value. But if you think Winks on the weekend should be a dollar and two cents or a dollar and three cents and you're getting a dollar and 14 cents, then obviously the value is enormous. And at that end of the market, you can sure as hell turn over a lot more money than you can at the $8, $10 end. And simple supply and demand as far as bookmaking is concerned. Bookmakers, generally speaking, want to lay the horses that represent the biggest percentage or the most likely outcomes in the race because that's where most of their money is. That's where most of the supply from the punters exists. So has that always been the case? So back you know, 20 years ago, for example, were all bookmakers trying to lay the, the first two or three in the market and, and that's much the same now or has it evolved or changed over the years? No, look, it's definitely a generalisation on my part, but generally speaking, bookmakers feel more comfortable laying favourites than they do laying runs, or if I can cap the fav- if I can lay the favourite at the right price, that this is the best path going forward. I believe it's flawed, and I approached it very differently, but I think I was, I won't say unique, but I was definitely different in my thinking when it came to bookmaking when I, when I hit the track in 1988. So I've heard this idea of a punting bookmaker and a, and a risk manager, and I don't know if that is thought about sort of in terms of the old school versus the new school. Um, I know Dominic Byrne mentioned that he was much more of a punting bookmaker, so perhaps there was a dozen others who weren't. Take us through, I guess, your thoughts on this topic and observations over time about those who were more focused on a punting mindset versus purely trying to balance uh, balance the book you know, on a race-by-race basis. Yeah, I know what you're saying. So growing, growing up in the early 80s on a racetrack, I was watching Dominic Byrne. I was ro- watching Robbie Waterhouse. And these were punting bookmakers, Mark Reed uh, in later years. But these were, bookma- these were bookmakers that shaped their books by their opinion. They were trading the price. They weren't trading the commodity of the horse. So th- they didn't see, I'm not gonna, I'm going to lay horse number one because I don't like it. They saw that this horse is a lay at a certain price and therefore it's a bet at a certain price. And those three gentlemen that I just mentioned had no, no problem in backing their judgment. Uh, if you were confident in the markets that you put out, then bookmaking gave you the opportunity not only to go long from a punting point of view, but also also to go short from a bookmaking point of view. And these are the days pre-Betfair. So if you wanted to go short or lay a runner, the only option you had was from the bookmaking stand. I see. Now that makes sense. Well, conversely, you know, for example, if you grew up in the 50s and 60s, you were used to going to race meetings with 300 bookmakers and tens of thousands of people going to the racetrack. In that case, the supply is so great. You could be a bookmaker in the purest sense of the word. And, you know, I know it's a, it's a modern term, a green book or a book where there is no losers. But during my 20 years as a rails bookmaker, I could not name the number of times on one hand when I had a green book or a round book where I had no losers. They just don't exist. They're great in theory, but in practice, they're few and far between. So that model of, of that bookmaking per se, where you actually stood up there and was a bookmaker in the true sense of the word, had long disappeared by the time that I got by the time I got to the track. And what about in 2018? Is it much the same, or do you think it's moved towards a risk management style of bookmaking? Because that's certainly what you hear in the in the media or on beautiful places like Twitter. Is that the case? Pure bookmaking doesn't exist anymore. Full stop. Um, 
there's bookmakers out there with client lists who are just happy to play their clients. But as far as, you know, playing the money that's in front of you as far as at the racetrack, that just doesn't exist anymore. They've either been funneled off into corporate land or they've just left the track because there's so many other distractions and so many other now things they can bet on. You've got to remember in the 70s and 80s, if you wanted to place a bet on a horse race, A, you had to be on track. There was no, you couldn't bring a mobile phone onto a racetrack. The internet didn't exist as far as I'm aware in, in Australia anyway. So the betting ring was a hive of activities in the 80s and even into the early 90s. But by the time, you know, mobile phones were allowed, the internet, you know, people were getting, inf- descending information, dissecting, I should say, information from all sorts of different avenues. The on-track betting ring had, had become not the primary place of business. So business had moved offshore, off-track. And, you know, we're, we're then introduced to exchanges, Asian exchanges, all sorts of different mediums by which people can invest their money. And that was to the detriment of, or I consider to the detriment of the on-track bookmaker who was the one at that time framing the markets. And, you know, he, he was he was the one that was creating the product for people to bet on. So that might be a detriment to the on-course bookmaker. Is it a detriment overall to the industry, do you think, that things have changed from a core primary marketplace being on track to being sort of on a even a global setting to a large extent yeah look i believe so look i no doubt it's introduced a lot of new punters into the market but i think to the detriment of the industry per se we don't like i said we don't have a primary marketing we have all these little subsidiary markets and you know there's no reason for you to go to the racetrack anymore, which is disappointing. There's no reason for you to bet into what the primary market that set up the race field. You can spend or gamble your money across a whole heap of different mediums. And I think the value's lost when you get so many different markets you can play in. If you get one bigger, big fluid market and that everyone can play into, then you have a robust market. When you have all these almost derivatives markets that have been created from, from the primary markets, then I just think it's stretched too thin and, I don't think racing can survive with things stretched so thin. I think you, it, it meets a critical mass and just implodes on itself. And I think that's almost where we are now. Okay. Do you think there's a way for all those, I guess, little streams and, and lakes and rivers to all meet into a big body of water somewhere? Or is it still going to be fractured to a large extent? It'll take a smarter man than me to work it all out, Jake. That's for sure. It does seem very fractured for me. And it seems like the corral gate's been left open. The horses are bolted. And oh, to be honest, I don't know how you get them all back in. Okay, because you do hear things about, you know, Asian exchanges and obviously you've got Betfair, the exchange, you've got on-course bookmaking, corporate bookmaking, paramutuals, fixed odds. There's a number of options, as you mentioned, but I guess... For sure. Yeah, it's a tough one. And fractured is a good word, and I think think that's a fair analogy. Okay, so what ultimately, or was there more than one reason that forced you or you sort of sat down and thought about leaving bookmaking at the track and, and change profession? Um, look, I, I never actually changed profession, um, Jake. So I was always punting. Like from my early teens, I've been I've been a punter, and I've, I was a bookmaker for that for that twenty year period, nineteen eighty eight to two thousand eight. But I've never I never in all my time stopped gambling or stopped betting or stopped pricing up racehorses. So bookmaking just facilitated a different way for me to take positions, whether they be long or short. And the truth of the matter is, I was a better punter as a bookmaker purely because I would have been standing there and feeling all the market forces acting upon me, and I'd have a far better idea of which way the market was going to move and who was doing what or who was doing something they shouldn't have been doing and as far as their money was getting filtered somewhere where I wouldn't have perceived it was going and that made punting a heck of a lot easier. Okay so what was the transition like? Did you just sort of day one to day two it just switched from being on a stand I guess to been punting from that position to home office type punting I would imagine? 
Yeah, very much so. So basically 1988, I sat down and I had a bit of time to think because EI, a horse has got the flu basically in late 2007, early 2008, and there was no racing in Sydney, which is the primary market that I gamble into. So it let me sit down and just analyze my booking, bookmaking business to the nth degree. And basically what I did is I, I got a ledger of all bets during a course of, I think it was about a year, and I took out all the bets from punters that win money over a period of time all the money, all the bets, I took out all the bets where the punter took a price where it could be perceived over long term he, he would be winning. In other words, he did far better than the SP. And what I was left with was basically the business that I had to cut a margin out of and to cover my expenditure. And that was just untenable. So at the end of the day, I realized the bookmaking was getting harder and harder. It was only going in one direction. There were more taxes, more regulation. The regulators were putting more and more hurdles in front of bookmakers, and they still are to this day. And I just didn't see a long-term future going forward. So I decided to give bookmaking away, and I haven't been back. And don't get me wrong, Jake, I would love to go back, but the three things I need to go back are a crowd, money, or actually they're really only the two things. I need people to start going to the track, and I need money to filter back to the track, and I don't see that happening in the not-too-distant future. So were the punters getting better too that, I guess, caused that analysis to come out as it did, or was it a mix of, the like we mentioned before, the, the fractured betting marketplace and ultimately is just ending up somewhere else rather than at the track no no most definitely so punters have got smarter over time and you know exponentially so so the margin that i might have had when i left school in the sort of mid to late 80s where you know just sitting down with a form guide doing a lot of hard work analyzing a lot of data people didn't have the computer systems back then to sort of analyze this data so if you were prepared to spend the time and put in the effort you had a big advantage on the market. Everything's very push-button today. Punters are far more educated. And whatever margin, whatever edge I had on the market back in the mid to late 80s was very fastly disappearing by the mid-90s. Okay, so let's talk about, we mentioned a bit about the different places available to bet now. I guess yes. the corporatization of, of betting, is that good for Stewie Davis and the punter post-EI when he's considering how he's going to attack, I guess, the marketplace and and create a viable business for himself as a professional punter? Uh, look, it, it opened up more avenues, that's for sure and certain, but it became the corporate environment, as far as the fixed odds products is concerned, is quite obviously very hard to get off, even if you're a break square or a sort of a, a low margin losing punter, it's hard to get a bet on there. Um, Betfair gives it a little bit of liquidity, but not if you want to push the market quickly in a certain direction. Betfair doesn't give you that opportunity. Well, not on a Sydney racing anyway. Betfair also becomes very illuminating for everyone else. Like It's almost like a tipping guide. It's almost showing people where the money's going, which obviously for professionals is not good. I'd rather keep any advantage I have to myself and collectively amongst all the pros as well. On-track bookmakers, the only service they offered that basically was showing the way for other punters was top fluck because then bookmakers would get an idea of where the money was flowing and obviously they would structure their markets around the top fluck money that they were getting early in the morning. But on your general question of have corporates been good for the punting environment, my answer is most definitely not. The The punting and bookmaking experience that I remember in the sort of the 80s and the 90s was almost a gentleman's agreement. Like bookmakers were letting you on to win $5,000 in the 80s, you know, multiple times, even in the outer ring. Nowadays, it's hard to, you know, 25 years later, it's hard to get on to win 2000 with a corporate. Is that good? I think not. As well as that, all the punters that were populating the parimutuel mutual pools that were creating you know, discrepancies in the market or disparate markets, they're now predominantly funneled into these corporate sports bet or whoever offering, you know, trifecta, all sorts of different exotic bet types. And your rank and file punter doesn't have the opportunity to bet against them. In other words, 
the corporates just absorb all that money and I can't play the game against them. And without their without their disparate betting, I don't have an edge or a, mar- or a margin in the market. So no is the answer to your question. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I was just sort of thinking about where all the money ends up ultimately or how it gets distributed amongst the the betting marketplace between all the different, I guess, entities involved. And well, for sure. It seems like it's uh, a lot of pull and not as much push. Very, very much so. So it's almost what we call bottom drawing. So they write these exotic bets and they just hit the bottom drawer and, you know, they just worry about them over the end of, say, a financial year. And they know over a period of time the margins associated with these products that they don't have to do too much risk liability in as far as, you know, well, if they were populating the, um, they were populating the parry mutual pools that every, you know, every punter gets the bear tail of fish. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair exchange is a low margin, buy, sell, fixed odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. Let's talk about parimutuel pools. How have they sort of evolved? I know they were very popular, apparently, back in the days. Are they much the same? Which sort of which direction are they trending? Are they useful for you as a professional punter? They are useful, yes, but they're trending down at an alarming rate. So basically, it goes back to the analogy I just described. Like you go back long enough, and everyone that wanted to have a bet, predominantly on a trifecta, a first four, and a quadrilla, a superfecta. I'm sure I've forgotten a few other exotic bet types there, had to populate these parimutuel pools. And, you know, if you had a little bit of computer software or a little bit of nous about, you could see where the discrepancies were in the market and you could take advantage of those discrepancies. Well, it doesn't exist anymore because so much money has been funneled out of those pools and funneled elsewhere, predominantly into these corporates, which, you know, I don't get a chance to, you know, trade against the money that's lodged in exotic bet types, in exotic pools, I should say, with corporate bookmakers. But we do get that opportunity with the parimutuel TABs. So where do all the professionals who want to turn over a, a decent amount of money have to play then? Obviously, there's certain restrictions on different avenues and there's different fees associated for different platforms, for example. So what, what are the options for not only Stewie Davidson, but the 50 other Stewies or the groups and syndicates? What are they thinking sure. when they see the different options? Look, the pari mutual still entices in the fact that you can bet there and hide your money. Like if you're betting into these exotic bet tours, predominantly people don't know what you're betting on and you can you can start feeding money into wind tools in the parimutuel pools at a very early time to keep a to keep a price at a certain level and no one's none the wiser if you walk into the betting ring and start running along the rails screaming to win five thousand you know number one with every bookmaker people will very quickly know what you're doing and what horses like it affirm and additionally if you do that in the ring they, then money feeds back into parimutuel pools and you're actually cannibalizing your own dividend because then joe blow average seeing you backing number one is then going and anchoring number one in his exotic bet type so yeah there's still a lot of money going into the parimutuel pools um there's still a little bit of, bit of business done fixed odds depending on how friendly you are with your bookmaker but i can only imagine if you're a winning punter that you know fixed odds betting is well, i won't say a nightmare but it's very difficult to say the least Betfair is obviously a great tool and, you know, it's a low margin product and, you know, we all use it, but it's, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and a lot of misdirection there a lot of the time. It's really only when it gets closer to jump time that we actually see where the real money's going. And there's the Asian betting exchanges, which I can't comment on because I've had no experience with them. So let's talk about professional punting. And I guess everyone has to go through rough patches. The mathematics sort of tell you there's going to be ups and downs and different experiences in terms of winning and losing runs. How do you deal with personally rough patches, whether it's a week or a month or a quarter, whatever it might be? What are some of the things that, from a process standpoint or even just a mindset to sort of refresh things, how do you go about it? 
Well, as long as you're not risking a large proportion of your bank in a short period of time, you should be able to handle short-term variance. If it becomes long-term variance, well, I guess you've got to question the methodology behind your selections or your quantifying. Of course, it still does happen. There's no graph that just points, you know, straight up in a 45-degree line. There's tricks and there's tricks. There is troughs and peaks all the way through it. How do, how do I tend to handle losing runs? Well, I try and clear my head. I try and have a break. I try and go away. I try and distance myself for a small period of time. But I am very confident in the um, the probabilities that I produce. And that confidence allows me to keep going even when I've had a, a small losing run or a small losing variance. So how do you evaluate your betting performance? I've heard things about you know profit on turnover and ROI and just you know, checking the bank balance at the end of the month, those types of things. What are the what are the main ones that you focus on? Look, as far as variables in my algorithms or in my model, I do I do tend to judge them by ROI, by my return on investment or my profit on turnover. However, when it comes to my punting, when my you know simple dollars and cents tells the story, and you know, I would I would rather be making a thousand dollars on a turnover of say two thousand dollars than I would you know turning over three hundred dollars and doubling my money. So. At the end of the day, the scorecard is dollars and cents. That's what feeds the family, so to speak. However, in saying that, when I'm judging the credibility or the criteria of any sort of variable in racing, I do use ROI. But for my own personal punting and where I win and lose and you know what works and what doesn't, at the end of the day, it's dollars and cents. So does that impact how you approach doing the form and betting? Will you focus then? You mentioned earlier about the pointy end of the market and the large amount of turnover that bookmakers will have in that sort of region of of betting, do you then think about it from a turnover perspective and know that if you want to turn over a decent amount, you've got to be focusing there, or does that not impact your sort of betting strategy? No, no, you're definitely correct. So I mean, my model has basically become, the margins just be getting smaller and smaller and smaller, so therefore the turnover has to go up proportionally to you know to warrant the same sort of profitability. So at the end of the day, the simple truth of the matter is I can't turn over as much on 20 to 1 chances as I can on $2 chances. And if I'm going to retain a margin of X, well, then I'm going to be able to turn over a heck of a lot more on the pointy end of the market than I am the outer, the outer side of the market. And conversely, bookmakers with, you know, simple economics of supply and demand, that's if that's where they want to, if that's the place they want to play, then, you know, that suits me down to the ground. And do you find that they are interested in, I guess, pushing out those $1.80 chances to, to an even money or are they pretty tight at that end of the market? No, look, Jake, some bookmakers telegraph their punches. Like, some bookmakers are only interested in laying that $1.80 chance. So you know what they're going to do. It's a, it's a huge advantage you've got on your competitors if you know what your competitors' next move is. So, you know, there are plenty of bookmakers out there that are only interested in laying that dollar chance, and they couldn't give a bugger about laying the 20 to 1 pop. So therefore, you know, they're not overly competitive with that 20 to 1 shot. Well, the $1.80 chance they are, more times than not, the $1.80 chance is going to be far superior value to the horses rougher and more outside in the market. So specialization, a lot of people talk about it in the sports world where you've got multiple sports, multiple jurisdictions and all that type of thing. What about in horse racing when you're thinking about punting? Are you able to, you know, with a relatively small operation, focus on Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth? Or are you just looking at really finding your niche? Mate, I don't want to be jack of all trades, master of none. Like to make money in this game, you've really got to you've really got to score very highly. If you're scoring 97 out of 100, you probably aren't making any money out of racing. So master of all trades, jack of none is just not going to work. So find what works for you. Find whatever niche market works for you and then just go to town on it. You know, live it, breathe it, 
It's the only way, in my opinion, you're going to make any money out of this game. If you're a multinational syndicate and you've got multiple staff across multiple, you know, different, you know, sports or regions, then sure. But that's not the business that I'm running. And on your approach to, I guess, doing the form and the analysis as well as the betting strategy, are you relatively open-minded on how you do things or are you pretty fixed in your approach, especially if it's been working? I am the most open-minded person you'll ever come across. I think people that get fixated on their ideas and aren't willing to change are the ones that have a very short lifespan in this game. Um, this game is ever-evolving. Most most industries, let alone you know gambling per se, has got has got you know sort of a rotation period and make things change all the time. And if you aren't prepared to learn, you know, you've got a very short life. And I think any industry, let alone the gambling industry. So how do you balance that? I know you've got to spend a certain amount of hours a week doing the form. What amount of time or what percentage of your week can you sort of allocate to research and development or whatever you want to call it or analyzing different new angles and new approaches? Mate, you've just explained my week in a nutshell. So you're right. The, the week is broken up and I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for a different angle. I'm always analyzing variables to see if I can make them better and the coefficient or the weighting that I put on those variables. Research and development over the last couple of years has taken a bigger and bigger sort of percentage of my week than say it would have 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, you know, I saw a couple of things that worked. I just would hone in on those variables. Uh, in this day and age, yeah, things move so quickly. And then variables get overplayed. So, you know, what worked 20 years ago doesn't work now because it was underplayed then and it isn't now. Or it's, it was underplayed then and it's now overplayed. So, obviously, then it has a negative equity effect on your bottom line. So, yeah, it's a constantly fluid and changing beast. And I'm more than interested to hear what anyone's take is on it and what any why anyone thinks... You know, what they saw, we'll try to explain what they just saw, not only in the race itself, but also in the betting. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Often it's, uh, this is my foundation and I'll have certain strands of that foundation, but I stick to the foundation. Is that fair to say in terms of sort of your core approach to it yeah, all? Yeah, th- that is fair to say. I don't like to deviate too far from the mean, but I know that if I don't deviate at all, I'll be I'll be drowning in a sea of, you know, old data basically. Yeah, and is it easier now with the online internet world to find... I guess, new, new and different approaches? Or was it easier at the track with hundreds and hundreds of punters and bookmakers and the smartest people sort of betting with their pocket, essentially, and able to put their opinion on the line? Well, good. that's a good question, Jake. I don't, I kind of say I don't know the answer to that. There was, there was very much a very uh, intelligent community that used to, that I learned and, you know, that, that taught me a lot over my, you know, 40 years on a racetrack. Um, and I'm very grateful and I'm still happy to learn, but I'm not at the racetrack anymore. I'm sitting at home. And I'm trying to crunch the numbers myself. But at the end of the day, if we're all doing the same thing, then there's no margin for any of us. So you have to think outside the square a little bit and you have to do things a little bit differently because swimming with the tide just gets you the same result as whatever the tide gets. And unfortunately, in this game, that's not going to be enough. So who are some of the best you've ever seen at evolving with the marketplace? And you mentioned your old man's been doing it for a while, so I guess he's pretty good at it. Who else? Or in addition to that, who else has done a pretty good job with uh, changing their game to a large extent and making sure that they're at the tip of the sword, mate. Look, I, I got to say, I've, I've learned from a lot of a lot of people over the last years. Dominic Byrne, who you had on a while back, taught me taught me a lot as a young kid. As far as I watched the way he conducted his bookmaking business, and you know, sort of the way he went about it, and the methodology not so much the methodology that he used to create the prices, but the methodology that he used to bookmake. Mate, Mark Reed, Robbie Waterhouse. You know, my father's obviously been a great mentor to me. But I've just been surrounded because I, I've been at the track, you know, since I was basically a teenager. I, I've been I've surrounded myself, you know, with like-minded people, and you know, bouncing ideas off each other 
Um, that wisdom of the crowds mentality is definitely a good way forward. It, it, it gets you thinking whether whether the premise is correct or not. It gets you thinking about it in different ways you can attack it. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. If you don't mind, tell me how you approach pricing a market and I guess some of the things you use to make sure I guess your process is sound and it gets you the results you're looking for. Look, well, the great thing about horse racing in, in compared to, say, the turn of a card or the toss of a coin is it's very subjective. You know, me and you can both watch a race and see something completely different. So it all comes down to the data that I put into my database at the end of the day, like, you know, beaten margins, times, that sort of thing. That's there for everyone to see. But it's just it's just the little it's the little changes or the, the subtle things that, that I see that someone else doesn't see that creates a point of difference and at the end of the day can create a market for me long term. And I'm comfortable with those sort of small tweaks over a long period of time. I'm not trying to beat the market by 10 or 12%. I'm quite happy just, you know, the plot along turning over as much as I can, hoping to make a very small margin. I'm not trying... I'm putting a lot of stead in what the market tells me. I'm not for one minute thinking the market is out by a, by a huge factor. If the market is out by a huge factor with my prognostication, then I'm thinking the fault probably lies with me because the market's got all sorts of different forces acting upon it. Uh, if that's the case, I'll then go back and interrogate the data again to see where I could potentially be incorrect. Okay, so you're just chipping away and you want to win long-term. I guess win slowly long-term, as some people like to say. It's exactly right. I want to get rich slowly. People that try and get rich quickly, some do it. Majority, you know, end up with a bloody ass out of their pants. <laughs> so, what does a what does a normal Saturday or a Wednesday entail entail for you then? Are you uh, pretty staunch in your prices and and what you think is going to happen, or are you factoring in bias and weather and track and all those other things? I guess dynamically. Hundred percent, Jake. So yes, I, I'm a big blender. I I will watch those variables or those factors you just talked about, and I'll change them every race. So I could get a complete. I won't get a completely different set of probabilities, but they will move depending on how how I think the conditions have changed or whether something is not as I had perceived it when I first came to the track. The market, you know, I put a lot of respect in what the market has to tell me, the story it has to tell me, what what the Betfair market has to tell me. So I am. I'm very open to a lot of different variables during the course of the day. I do have a set of prices on a Friday night for the Saturday races, but the end result and by the time the race comes to jump will be slightly different from the ones that I created on the, on the night before. So do you ever go to a track or go to a race day or do you have someone there that can relay information to you? Is it at all useful? So, mate, like, like I said, during my day and age, I surround myself with five computer terminals and I'm just getting information feeds and computers are analysing things left, right and centre. I do speak to people on the track, that is true. But, yeah, no, it's, it's become a number-crunching game far more than a sort of logistic game where you have to go to the track to get the money on, so to speak. Now, I heard very recently on Racing Rant that you're thinking about uh, or if things were to change a certain extent, you may be interested in moving back to the track. Is that is that the case? That, that is correct. Look... Mate, there's just been more and more hurdles put in front of bookmakers, and obviously in the last month, the um, the elimination of the line of credit was a big one for corporate bookmakers because in my limited experience with corporate bookmakers, the smaller market cap ones, their credit clients can represent 60 70% of their business. Now, if you take that that option away from the punters, I would imagine the only option left to them if they want to have a bet every Saturday, and I imagine if they do this every week, they want to have a bet, is to feed money back on track 
So I was hoping that would boister or bolster the um, the on-track betting environment and make it more vibrant than it currently is because at the moment it's just well, there's not a lot to attract people back to the races as far as the bidding is concerned, apart from the bookmakers. There's no money in the ring. I imagine everyone's just standing around there twiddling their thumbs. If they were to get this injection of money, then I, 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 was, I was surmising that that would make it, maybe not the primary market, but it would sure as hell be the, the primary place I wanted to be, you know, as far as reading markets are concerned. I would love to go back to back to bookmaking. That would be my primary goal. But at the end of the day, I have to be convinced that people are going back to the track and money's going back to the track. Because I don't want to play a game when I'm standing out there trying to trade a certain price and basically there's no supply. I'm happy to bring the demand, uh, but if there's no supply, then I don't have a business. So do you think that, I guess, that margin or the tiers of margin you mentioned before about if you took out break-even and winning punters and uh, you took out sort of the regulatory and, and taxation costs, that would be much the same and you would have to have a high enough turnover to justify that or do you expect that to shift a little bit? No, I, well, I would hope it would shift a little bit. But once again, you know, considering the taxes that they impose on bookmakers and they're just getting more and more, they're now talking about a point of consumption tax in the eastern states. So, you know, bookmakers' margins are tight to start with. If It's very hard to increase those margins. So you've got to increase your turnover and pretty much you've got to in- increase your turnover, you know, exponentially to, you know, warrant justifying the added expenses that, you know, regulators and administrators are imposing upon you. So, Turnover was in such a rapid decline when I was last there. I struggle to see how it's going to lift to the lofty heights that it has to to overcome these um, expenses. But I need to be convinced that it's it's possible before I would go back as a bookmaker. But at the end of the day, that is something I would really like to do because a I enjoyed bookmaking. A it's it's almost a social thing. Like sitting in sitting in an office with surrounded by five terminals is mundane and boring to say the least. Um, going to the races is is an event. And uh, it is something I would like to do. And I was a far better punter from the bookmaking stand than I am from this desk I'm sitting on right now, um, surrounded by computer screens. So what advice do you have for any young punters who might have been in similar shoes to you at age 20 and perhaps not with, you know, a family member of the track or a long history in, in betting or bookmaking? Are there some things that the younger generation can do now in this current day and age and the environment for punting? Look, Jake, if you're hungry for any, anything enough in life, you know, you, you, I'm not going to stop anyone from going out and getting it. If you really, you know, if you commit, you know, all your resources to it and you treat it like a business and not a bit of fun, yes, you can make it work. But you've got to understand that this is a, you know, 24-7 operation and, you know, you've got to immerse yourself in all facets of the industry to make it work. You can't just do it on a whim. It just won't work. They'll tear you to pieces. So, Mate, yeah, if, if you're hungry enough for anything in life, I think, you know, and you're strong enough, you can go out and get it and make it work. So, yes, of course, there's opportunities available for, for people entering the industry, but just be mindful that, you know, you're swimming in a pool with a lot of sharks. So I guess in line with that, what are some of the betting tools that you value and use or even on the bookmaking side? And people talk about the market intelligence they can sort of garner from Betfair or dynamic odds, ratings to win, these type of things, even sort of... Vince Accardi's work, what are some of the things that you utilise that may not be cost prohibitive for some of those younger punters looking to get into the game? Well, dynamic odds, you know, for the fixed odds product, quite obviously dynamic odds is a great tool, even though it's very expensive now. Dynamic uh, race odds is a good tool for purveying all the corporate bookmakers as far as the fixed odds are concerned. Quite obviously, you need some tool to analyse Betfair or just to capture the data to understand what you're seeing on Betfair. So, you know, there's a lot of them out there. I use the grass betting assistant, but, you know, there's Bet Angel. There's probably another 20 out there that are capable of capturing and analysing data. I write most of the software I use, I actually wrote myself. I wrote it a long time ago, and I've just slowly but surely sort of been changing it over time. 
it's very dinosaur code. It's very old. You know, it should be rewritten, but there's so many lines of code, and I just don't have the um, well, I don't have the ability at the end of the day to sit down and relearn another language and recode it all. But my own betting software is what predominantly has given me a point of difference over the last two three decades. Just one point on information in the marketplace. Do you? value inside information that you know often gets thrown around or no how do you approach that or how do you how do you approach it then do you just discard it completely do you factor it in at all i don't factor it in at all i listen to it because I, I think you know there's an in, in racing there's two factors there's expectation and there's reality so as far as the expectation is concerned this inside information is going to have a bearing on the market which is going to affect me and as far as the price i take which is going to affect my margin at the end of the day but I find it's more of a hindrance than a help. Oh, there are people in the industry I'm happy to listen to, but at the end of the day, most of them only know what's in their own backyard. They they can't comment with any great authority on horses from other yards or mounts on other horses. So I try to keep it out of the model, to be quite honest. I really do. It's it's something I listen to because I it's going to influence which way the market is likely to go. But as far as my own personal probabilities or rated markets, I tend to stay away from it. I guess it's just another variable that you know you need to be aware of without necessarily jumping For at sure. every time. For sure. So one more before I let you go, Stewie, and it's obviously a changing debate perhaps with uh, recent performances, but Winks and Black Caviar, how do you see that? Um, who's better? And I know they're different distances and different times and all that sort of stuff, but how do you, how do you think about it? I hate comparing champion racehorses of any generation, but, mate, Winx is the best horse I have ever seen in this country. And the only horse I could compare it to would be Frankel in the UK. Um, and Frankel only had a handful of starts, so it's, it's hard to know what, what upside Frankel had. But, mate, Winx is something very special. And I remember Kingston Town in the early 80s winning those Cox Plates. And, mate, she is something special, this mare. I'd, I'm sure she's going to go for fourth Cox Plate, but I'd love to see them take her on the world stage and you know let the rest of the world see exactly how good she is because she's an absolute marvel. Fair enough, fair enough. One last one, last one. Uh, where do you get your information from when, in terms of, you know, your punting or you talk about open-minded attitude? Are you reading, you know, certain newsletters or books, or you're outside of the racing field and you're looking at things like Wisdom of the Crowd or some more cognitive-related stuff? If you don't mind, a couple of tips for those who are looking for different things to, to read or listen to or watch. Mate, I'm so immersed in this whole industry that I'm happy to read, listen to basically anything I can get my hands on. As far as literature is concerned, yeah, look, the wisdom of the crowds was probably one in the last 10 years. It was a real eye-opener for me to, when, to, you know, to think about the blending of markets and you know how a collective attitude you know, will beat a, sort of a linear attitude nine times or 99 times out of 100. So that was a real eye-opener as far as um, as creating my result in markets was concerned. Yeah, but, mate, at the end of the day, I just think there's so much out there. I know there's a lot of noise and there's, there's a lot of stuff you've got to be wary of, but, mate, there's so many news feeds on horse racing. I, I'm happy I'm happy to listen to – I'm happy just to listen and analyse whatever I can get my hands on, basically. No, that makes sense. Shui, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. I, uh, I wish you all the best with the, the punting and whether it's on a stand at a racetrack or you're uh, the mundane life of a pro punter. All the very best. Thanks, Jake. I've, I've enjoyed it, mate. Take care. Cheers.